Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, I bring you greetings from uh, the new ministry partner that I'm a part of, Denison Ministries, uh, founded 13 years ago by Dr. Jim Denison, one of my professors in seminary a long time ago. Jim was born just up the road here in southwest Houston, went to Houston Baptist University, and on to do doctoral work at Southwestern Seminary, taught in four different seminaries, and after pastoring for 25 years, stepped out to found a ministry called Denison Forum. Our goal is to equip and encourage believers uh, to be like the men and women of Issachar in the Old Testament. The Bible says about them that they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. So what we try to do is to help believers like you to understand our times, to impart what we say is discern the news differently so you can see it through a biblical lens and respond to it in the most redemptive ways. That's what we're all about. If you're interested in those kinds of things, you can find us at denisonforum.org and uh, would love for you to check out some of those resources. Yes, I had the privilege of of meeting David 25 years ago almost 24 25 years ago we were planting a church in North Dallas McKinney in a in a development called Stonebridge Ranch and we were in desperate need of a student pastor because there were a lot of families just like you with uh, children in the student teen years and a lot more coming so I met David I don't even remember how I met David coming right out of A&M and I tried to look past that, just to be honest with you. I was raised a longhorn. But uh, I, I tried to look past that. Oh, by the way, I found that A&M graduates are very good at being student pastors. There's just enough screws loose, all right? But we met, and uh, first meal we ever had was at IHOP early in the morning. Me and another David, very important in my life, something I'll talk about in a minute. We met, and after about 90 minutes of conversation, David left the breakfast and the other David a banker in McKinney he and I looked at each other and said that's the guy that's the guy last Monday I was playing in a pastor's golf tournament in North Dallas and a guy walked up to me who I only knew by name we'd heard of each other but never really knew each other and he walked up and told me that he was pastor of a church in Keller and that there was a young lady that came out of my church named Paige Holt her maiden name that he had just hired as she was finishing her degree at Fuller Seminary to be his women's pastor. And I was talking to Christy about that a moment ago. We believe that Paige was the very first young lady that David Adams ever baptized at Cross Point Church 25 years ago. That's the legacy of your pastor. I love him. And it has been my joy and Judy's joy to know he and Christy, to meet when they were just about to get engaged uh, and then got married and served with us and helped to get our church rooted and founded and we would tell you that we don't feel like we've ever had a youth minister that compared to that first youth minister David Adams and it's a great honor a great great honor to be with you this morning in his absence let's pray for him all through this trip and for his team as they serve together if you have your bible i would invite you to turn it to what i would call the fourth or fifth most familiar passage in the bible right if somebody just walked up to any person on the street said hey do you know anything about any story or any part of the bible somebody would say well isn't that where we get that story called the good 
Samaritan, that's right. Or they might say, what about the prodigal son? That really ought to be the prodigal God, but that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. Somebody might say there's that guy that holds up the picture at the athletic events. It's got three numbers on it and a semicolon, and it's, it's John what? John 3.16. You might get at least that far, maybe one or two others with the Lord's Prayer, something like that. But somewhere around number five or so, you're likely to come upon a passage called the 23rd Psalm. If you'll find that. And then I want you to also stick your finger way at the back of the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Psalm 23 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. You may have heard the name Timothy Keller, the New York pastor who is now battling pancreatic cancer. He wrote a prolific number of books. One of those books was called How to Reach the West Again. In that book, he cites the research of a guy by the name of Michael Green who did a survey of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, and said this, 80% or more of the outreach, the evangelism, the sharing of faith that connected to another person, 80% of that in the early church was not done by professional Christians. That is, it wasn't done by the leaders, by the vocational pastors, we would call them. No, it was done by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to a network of friends and close associates. So Keller observes, people paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, or perhaps loved in another context, spoke to them about it. According to Barrett's Encyclopedia, a conservative estimate is that there might be 80 to 100,000 people around the globe who commit their lives for the first time to Jesus Christ in faith today. Would you say amen to that? There are some people that believe that 100,000 people a day just in China, in the underground church, come to Christ every day. But do you know, according to Barrett's research, that out of that 80,000 people conservatively estimated to come to Christ today, that only about 6,000 of those people who commit to Christ live in the United States of America or Western Europe. There is, we believe, the fifth great awakening occurring in our world today but it is not occurring in our part of the world. Why not? What about our testimony? Have you ever noticed that you can gather up in your life a whole bunch of people with the same name? I looked on Google this morning. What's the number one most popular boy's name right now? Strangely enough, biblical name, Noah. You can also find Liam and William. You can find the girl's name, Emma. Judy and I have two people in the last year who have babies named Eliza that we know. But it just seems like I keep running into these seasons where I have a bunch of people with the same name. Growing up, there was a guy in my neighborhood who I would later find in middle school was my wife's middle school boyfriend. His name was Paul. He would also become my roommate in college for a year. 
I had another high school friend that I went to school with in college and seminary. His name is Paul, serves at a church in Longview where, where David used to serve. Our pastor was named Paul Powell. I had leaders in my church, Paul Barnes, one of my closest friends even today, another leader in that church, Paul Cobb. Just seems like I've been surrounded by Pauls. But it also happened with another popular biblical name, this guy named David. That, that guy that was sitting at breakfast that first morning when I met your pastor, his name was also David. He'd been the chairman of the pulpit committee that brought me to McKinney. And then all of a sudden in comes this, this first youth minister full of excitement, full of smiles, full of energy, full of craziness. His name was David. In fact, almost every youth minister we had for the next 25 years, every one of them was named David. And just about the time I thought I was getting rid of all of the Davids, my daughter goes off to A&M herself, ruins my life in that way. And in her first year, guess who she meets and falls in love with? David, yes. But if you were looking for figures that stand out in the Bible more than Jesus, or not more than Jesus, but other than Jesus, You'd go a long way before you'd find somebody more than David in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. I want to point you to them in just a moment. Somebody asked me about five years ago as we were trying to rework some new strategy in our church. Church consultant said to me, why are you here? Why are you a pastor? Why are you the pastor of this church? And I want your immediate answer. I said, I want to help people connect to what I call the Christ life what Jesus described and talked about in John 10 10 when he said I have come as the gate and the people who come in to a relationship with God through me they will go in and out like happy sheep finding great pasture I have come as the great shepherd I have come that you might have life have it to the full have it overflowing have it abundant joyful spirit natural supernatural i want to help people connect to that life that i discovered when i was a teenager this thing called the christ life supernatural joyful and abundant so do you realize go back and read that passage if you will sometime today or this week in john 17 or john 10 that when you get toward the end of that conversation, the people that heard Jesus talk about this life that he wanted to give, that he wanted it to be your testimony and my testimony like we sang a moment ago, that, that when they heard him, him talking that way, that the crowd divided into two groups. Some people said, there's no one like this. No, he must be from God. He must be the Messiah. He is the way, the truth and the life, the way to get the life that we've always longed for but others people said and you can read it in the latter part of John 10 they just said he's crazy he's nuts what would be your testimony when you think about being a part of something bigger than your own selfishness right now on this particular Sunday morning at this particular moment in time if I could get right next to you and you felt safe with me what would you say is your greatest need of the moment? Is it simple, something simple like you're hungry? 
tired? You're thirsty? You wish you had Starbucks? You missed out on the donuts? Is it something bigger? Are you afraid? Are you facing a decision or a diagnosis that causes you great? What is your biggest need? The Bible scholar Alexander McLaren said that the tragedy of the 23rd Psalm is that it is only read so often at funerals when it should be the everyday experience of every Christian. Where David the poet, reinforced by Paul the prophet and apostle, declares that the abundant life that is in Christ, the Christ life, is a life in which God will take care of us. He will meet our everyday needs, our emergency needs, and our eternal needs. Would you listen to that again from both David and Paul? And would you stand with me as we read the six verses of this beautiful psalm? David declares his testimony the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I will fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. And everyone who agreed with this testimony said together, you may be seated. God's word to God's people on this good Sunday. God, this moment, please, Come and speak to me and through me that you might be known better among all of us as we look at the testimony of your word and that as we hear the testimony of this truth, it would become our truth and then it would become your truth through us to the lives of others around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. David said, I have all that I need. I am totally content like a little sheep wandering around with his shepherd and his friends being completely cared for. And you know what? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul would say. To the Philippian church, Paul said, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. These two incredible pillars of faith, almost like bookends within the Bible, David to Paul. How they testify of this same truth that this incredible shepherd king wants to meet all of our needs, starting with our everyday needs. Could it be more serene? Some suspect that David might have written this little poem while he was a shepherd boy being assigned an inglorious task by his father and that he kind of got bored with the task and he preferred poetry and music and so perhaps while he was out there doing the dirty work of shepherding he took up pen and just started to write down some lyrics that he might use later on in a song I don't really subscribe to that theory I think the better evidence and idea is that David wrote these words when he was an old man 
and he had proven the Lord's faithfulness of taking care of him and he remembered those early days of his youth when he took care of the flock on behalf of his father but he learned then and experienced all across the long stretch of his reign as king God's caring nature that even in the most mundane ways like a sheep who needs to be led to fresh grass like a a flock that sometimes doesn't understand the rhythm of their own lives well enough to know when they need to stop and sit down and lay down and rest just up the road here at Houston Baptist University is a guy that I've admired for years his name is Dr. Robert Sloan he's the president of the university before that he was the president of Baylor University when he was president of Baylor just in his first couple of years I was in a retreat with him and about 40 other pastors and you could tell when Dr. Sloan walked in just the rigor of what it was like to be in charge of a university if you'd seen him oh I don't know 36 months before he took the job and then 36 months after he took the job it's kind of like what you see about presidents right they come in they look young and vigorous their hair is a normal color and by the time they get to the end of their first term you don't know what's happened to them they look bedraggled and their hair turned gray and you're like what's going well that's what that's how Dr. Sloan looked and when somebody asked him hey Dr. Sloan what's it like for you these days being the president of a university for the first time and he said well are you looking at me he said you know what I found out about a, about a week ago that the most spiritual thing I could do would just be lay down on my living room floor and take a nap seems like all of us need to do that these days what's your need what's your everyday need that the shepherd wants to come and lead you to a place where you can lie down and rest because Jesus looked out at the crowds one time and said hey are you weary and carrying a heavy load come and follow me put on my yoke that is walk along with me in my way of life and I will give you rest you need to be led by the quiet waters where there's plenty of provision because sheep won't drink out of violent water they're scared of loud noises and of sudden movements but would you let it be that Jesus is your king today in such a way that in every day you can say as it says in verse 3 he's restoring my life he's leading me in a sacred path and a sacred pace that's sustainable and my life is connected to a sacred purpose something bigger than me it's connected to the glory of God you do realize that we are living in very anxious times at the end of last year November 2021 a survey was done across our, our nation asking people to pick just one word that would describe their feelings about how life is for them right now 67% of those people chose the same word or idea they used the word disappointed disappointed do you need peace my pastor used to tell my wife and I from the pulpit you know life can be hard on a daily basis when you're trying to keep your hand on the wheel your head in the game your shoulder to the grindstone and your eye on the ball that takes a lot of effort and oftentimes there's a lot of disappointment in it 
The Apostle Paul knew something of that, writing from a jail cell that he did not expect to escape from except through death. He said this, closing out his testimony in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He said, at my first defense or trial, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Wow. You know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, you know that he never traveled or served alone. He was always pulling people in around him and getting them to serve along with him in the things of God. He did that with Timothy, he did that with Titus, he did that with Philemon, he did that with a long list of people that you can find in his letters. But now he says, in this crucial moment, because in the Roman days, when you were put in prison, you were only put in prison for one of two reasons. You were never put in prison as a means of ongoing punishment. You were only put in prison by the Romans either to be held there until your trial could be executed or until your sentence, usually death, was executed. And on this particular occasion, Paul is probably in the worst prison cell he ever experienced called the Maritime Prison a hole in the ground where he was lowered in and food might occasionally be dropped in. Paul was probably staying there for months while he listened to his own gallows being constructed outside of that prison. And so here he says, at a crucial moment in my life, all of my friends, all of my associates, all of my team, they scattered. And you can hear the disappointment in him. Go back and read this short little letter. You can read it inside of 12 minutes out loud. You'll find in every single chapter of 2 Timothy that Paul is struggling with disappointment with somebody that he is very close to. But notice what he says. They all deserted me. That was disappointing. But notice the forgiveness, the grace that God gives him. May it not be counted against them. May it not be held against them by the Lord. He sounds like Jesus on the cross when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Or Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 6 when he's being stoned and Stephen says something of the very same order. Now Paul is articulating this incredible grace statement that one of our more regular needs is the confronting of disappointment, especially personal disappointment. And hopefully that's not on a daily basis, but it does seem too frequent, doesn't it? God wants to help us as our shepherd king with all of those kinds of struggles. But it's not just about the everyday needs, it's also about the emergency needs. You notice how the little poem shifts gears very quickly, doesn't it? We go from this very serene pastoral picture of a shepherd with his you know, pure white sheep, which by the way, they are never pure white. And, and this very idyllic setting of a green pasture and a babbling little brook and everybody has plenty to eat and the sheep and the shepherd don't feel any. They, it's all serene, it's all beautiful. And then all of a sudden, verse four comes. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, through death valley. I don't fear any evil. All of a sudden, all of a sudden we've gone from a, a, a shepherd with his sheep to a, to a traveler with his guide. 
some think it's a completely different image i just think it's one more aspect of the great shepherd again back to that first paul one of those first pauls in my life my pastor i can remember on a ordinary sunday just like this he said something that i haven't forgotten in 40 years if you sail the sea of life long enough you will encounter rough water and one of the difficulties that you and i have in our journey of faith is how do we reconcile the randomness of life with the goodness of our god how do we make sense out of something like this person getting covid and that person didn't this family has a child with special needs and most others don't their per this person has a traffic accident or gets swept up in a natural disaster but the one right next door misses out we could spend an entire sunday morning we could spend an entire lifetime trying to think together and understand how it is that the good shepherd of our god didn't stop all of this stuff for many it is the biggest single obstacle to faith one philosopher said that if there is even one child with cancer that is enough proof that god cannot exist we could spend our whole time talking about that topic why doesn't this good shepherd stop those kinds of things you get into big issues about our world being broken by sin by our own involvement our own poor choices in bringing some of that suffering onto ourselves and onto others the collateral damage that somebody else's bad choices in sin spills out on you and me there's a lot that we could talk about but what I want you to hear this morning is God's promise again that no matter what your random crisis or emergency is he longs to be there with you God never ever promises that there is a beltway around trouble he always promises that there is a way through it with him when we're done I'm giving this little book that's meant a lot to me to your pastor the book is a book of common prayer or what's called daily prayer by a Scottish minister who lived a little more than a hundred years ago named John Bailey if you're looking for a way to enrich your prayer life I would strongly urge you to buy this book it's called a diary of private prayer and on every page for each month you can read a suggested prayer and then you can write your own I was looking through this just a couple of days ago and on the 20th day I came to this part of the prayer in John Bailey's book it says this Lord let me face what you send with the strength you supply when you make what I do effective help me to ensure that your word is effective in my heart when you call me to go through the dark valley do not let me persuade myself that I know my way around. Don't you wish we had such a way? Did you notice how important the grammar is? We live in a world where some people are making a lot out of pronouns. Have you noticed? David, the shepherd, talking about his shepherd king 
makes a lot out of pronouns in verse 4. He's now no longer talking about God, he's talking to God, which is often what trouble does. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no with no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You see, when you're in the valley as a believer, the shepherd watching over you has at least three or four tools that he has to bring to your aid. The first one is what we sing about and celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel. What does that word mean? God with us. One of the longest Christian benedictions goes simply like this, God be with you. When we get into our prayer circles, what do we say? God be with them, God be with them, God be with them. Because we know deep in our hearts that the presence of our shepherd king changes every situation, does it not? Or it can if we let it. We've been captured, have we not? If I had asked you in December, who is the president of Ukraine? You would probably have said, well, where in the heck is Ukraine? And you would have said, I got no idea who the president of Ukraine is. But now we are captured, we are mesmerized, we are galvanized around our own set of American values by watching a patriot named Vladimir Zelensky take on a tyrant named Vladimir Putin and we are galvanized again around our, our own common values as Americans about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we are inspired by a man who, as far as we can, set, can tell, has no particular active faith of any kind except he believes in his people and he believes in his country and he believes in freedom. Do you know why, in part, we are inspired by such a man as Vladimir Zelensky? It's because of his resilient determination not to leave. That he doesn't stand and pontificate and tell his people what to do. He stands in the middle of the crisis with them and is leading them through. You may have heard reporters and commentators comparing him to the likes of Winston Churchill, who in the blitz on Great Britain from the Nazis stood on top of a building and, and people were concerned as he moved about in the bombing that the most important asset that the Brits had was about to be taken out by a bomb, but the people knew their leader was with them. I heard the story of George Washington when he was leading the Revolutionary Army that there was a moment in the battles where George Washington was 30 yards away from the enemy line. One of his aides was so afraid of what was going to happen to Washington that he was going to be taken down by a bullet that he took off his patriot hat and covered his eyes because he couldn't bear the thought of seeing George Washington felled by a bullet. What's the common thread? No one ever questioned that those three leaders, no, those four leaders, including Jesus, weren't right in the middle with them. 
And if I speak today to someone who is in some kind of dark place, some kind of valley, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't want you to be alone. And you don't have to be alone. He wants to take your hand, no matter how dark the valley is. And he has capacity. He has a staff and a rod. Now, theologians like me debate this kind of stuff. Was that two different instruments, or was it one instrument with two different functions at, the, at opposite ends? That's the way I think about it. A shepherd's staff, you'd want one hand free if you were a shepherd, right? But it might have been that it was this long crook, and, and on one end was something like a mallet that the shepherd could use as a weapon if he was fighting off a predator or if he was kind of nudging that ornery sheep who didn't want to go in the right direction. I know that doesn't apply to anybody here except David Adams. There might have been something like a mallet that you would just tap that little ornery sheep to get them moving in the right direction. And at the other end is that familiar crook that would be gently used to pull that sheep out of danger or bring them back into the fold, that more gentle tool when people are more cooperative. Apostle Paul spoke of exactly this same thing. The very next verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, says that after everybody had left him and disappointed him and he was showing them grace, notice what he says is his testimony, but the Lord stood with me at this trial and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the gentles might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth when he speaks of the lion's mouth in that experience with Rome some believe he was actually talking about real lions that he was facing the kind of ordeal that we read about when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den that it was likely possible that Paul was going to be taken if he was found guilty and taken to the Roman Colosseum and used as bait for their entertainment. But he said, in the midst of that, God stood with me. So if you're in a dark place, you're never alone. His presence is there. His power is there. And his voice is there. Go back again to John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. Go back and listen to some of the things that he promises us. He says twice in short order, I am the gate for the sheep. Anyone who enters by me will come in and go out and find good pasture. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, he says again in verse 11. I will lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that I'm going to go get, he says, and they will know my voice and there will be one flock. I will lay down my life, he says again, verse 17, so that I may take it up again over and over again he says that we're not alone and so my question to you this morning is are you in a relationship with Jesus so that you can hear his voice as far as I can tell 
there were only two times in recorded testimony about Jesus that he ever raised his voice. Maybe three. One of them might have been when he was cleansing the temple of the money changers, although it doesn't say explicitly that he raised his voice. We know that when he was on the cross being the sacrifice for our sin, we know in that moment he raised his voice as strong as he could to cry out to his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in his teaching ministry, only one time that I know of did Jesus ever raise his voice, and it was in John chapter 7, verse 37, recorded there. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival... Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Anyone, anyone who is thirsty. Is that you? This shepherd king meets your everyday needs. He meets your emergency needs. He wants to meet your eternal needs. You know the you know the poem, don't you? It pivots once more. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Table is a big deal in the Bible. You anoint my head with oil, which is an oil of affirmation and encouragement and soothing and comfort and blessing. My cup, what? How many of you, how many of us would have walked in here today or will walk out of here or will come to the end of this day and put our head on the pillow and say, God, thank you. You have made my day. You have made my life. You have made my heart. You have made my spirit overflow because of your love and goodness and grace and presence and power and direction. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. You know, every time I've ever read that for 40 years, I've like, I don't want goodness and mercy or goodness. I, I don't want them pursuing me. I want them running over me. I want them in front of me and behind me and beside me and around. I, I want these things all. And, and that's certainly what he means. That like C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, wrote about that that God is like the hound of hell chasing after us always wanting us to experience his best I don't know how you feel about the future probably a little anxious all of us God's given us this wonderful ability right it, it's both wonderful and dreadful at the same time in some ways we have the ability to anticipate we have the ability to forecast, to look down the road, to think about what might be coming, what might happen, how we might set a goal and move toward it. We have the ability to anticipate, but that also means we have the ability to be anxious about what we anticipate. I don't know where you live. I don't know where you're from. You don't know much about me, but I can tell you we all live every day at the exact same address. We all live at the corner of history and hope as we anticipate what our future is going to be. We don't know, as they say, we don't know the future, but we know the one who holds the future. And he has promised that from now until then, when we see him face to face, he will constantly pursue us, overtake us, and overflow us with his consistent goodness and faithful love. 
until finally there is that moment when we will live face to face with him when we will dwell when we will abide those are churchy words that means you're going to get to be there forever as his adopted adopted child now I don't know how much experience you have with adoption I don't have a lot there was a season after our second child was born where Judy and I considered adopting sometimes we wish we still had we love kids my mother was a Christmas adopted baby we don't know any of the circumstances it was a closed adoption back in 1931 but two days before Christmas my mother was born on the 23rd and she was brought home to her adopted mother my grandmother I think on Christmas Day or the day after she would be their only child and apparently she liked that experience so much that she had eight children do you know in the Roman world 2,000 years ago parents could do whatever they wanted with their babies without reprisal if you didn't like the way the baby looked if you didn't like what gender the baby was it was a pretty common thing back in the New Testament world that if you wanted a boy and you got a girl it was not uncommon that the Romans would just toss that baby out at the garbage dump one of the ways the Christians demonstrated their faith 2,000 years ago they had no power to stand up to Rome and so what they would do is they would simply go down to the garbage dump and they would pick up those abandoned babies and they would take them home and they would raise them as their own and that became such an incredible compelling testimony of love and mercy and grace that how could people ignore it but in the Roman world while you could do anything that you wanted to do with your biological baby when it was born, if you chose to adopt a child, the expectations legally went sky high. You were required, not as an option, but as a requirement, to write that adopted child into your will immediately. You were required to accept the full responsibility of that child and not in any circumstance to be able to break it because you had chosen that child to be your child forever you want a good bible study get you a good online tool and just follow out the word adopted or adopt in the new testament as a description of who you and i get to be when we enter into a relationship with jesus what can he tell us about heaven he can tell us that it's relational it's all about relationship with God and with each other the most common question preachers get asked when somebody dies in a family do you think I'm going to know my loved one later on I think the Bible says that with an emphatic yes it's going to be relational it's going to be abundant it's going to be overflowing and if you read John 10, 10 again carefully, Jesus will say over and over again, it's going to be permanent. Two different times as he describes himself as the good shepherd, he says, nobody, nobody, nobody can snatch my father's children out of his hand. What does the apostle Paul say quickly from his testimony? He says this, 
Not only was I rescued from the lion's mouth, he says this, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him, to him be the glory forever and ever. And the people said, amen. Oh, come on. Amen. We're going to heaven, folks. Heaven. R.G. Lee, the great preacher of Memphis a generation ago, said that heaven is the greatest place that the mind of God can conceive and the hands of God can create. How could you not want to go to a place like that? I'll close with this. Picture of heaven. Tables are big deals in the Bible. Imagine that you see two pictures and when you initially glance at these two pictures side by side, they look almost exactly the same. They are long, humongous, endless, reaching banquet tables, and there are people sitting at these formal tables all around in great numbers. And it looks exactly the same. The food looks enormous and, and exquisite, the greatest kinds of food that you're longing for right now and wishing that I would shut up so you could go get and you look and the table just goes on and on and there's every kind of food the decorations are incredible the chairs the tablecloth is all incredible but as you look a little closer as you look a little closer you start to see that the only first difference you notice is the expression on the people's faces in one picture on the left they're all scoured and frowning and angry and red faced and in the other picture in the other picture, they're just laughing. They're celebrating. It's the greatest gathering of food and people you've ever seen. And then when you look a little bit closer, you notice that, that really everything is the same, including the silverware. Except in the picture, you notice that all of the spoons and the forks are like five feet long. And you're like, what kind of a banquet must this be? Every single serving instrument is four or five feet long. And when you look at the picture on the left where everybody's unhappy, they're all trying to figure out, how do I get my spoon to come around so I can scoop something down the table? But, but, it, but my arm's not long enough. I can't turn the spoon or the fork to get it in my mouth. And then when you look over at the other picture, you notice that they're just simply feeding each other across the table. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus is creating us to be as his family. You notice how three, th things come in threes? I don't know if David preaches in threes. I almost always preach in threes. I'm sorry, I preach in threes. But Jesus told us to do this. He told us to pray, to ask, to seek, and to knock. I just wonder in these next few minutes for just a second, would you pray with me? And as we pray together that we would do those three simple things. We would ask, we would seek, and we would knock. Let me lead you. As we pray together, is there something just almost seems too trite to mention to Jesus? But you would humble yourself about one of the everyday needs in your life that maybe hasn't been as easy and just ask Jesus today just ask him for his help again maybe 
as there always is in a room with this many people in it. Maybe there is some kind of an emergency, a need, a crisis. You're in a place of darkness. Would this just compel you to seek Jesus with great intentionality and with great intensity? That you would not allow this moment to drag you away from him, but only toward him. Even with all your questions and tears and fears and everything that goes with this crisis, would you seek him with all that you have? And as you think about your future and the future of those that you love, would you knock on that door knowing that you would never knock on a door that you didn't anticipate that there was someone on the other side that was waiting to open to you. That's our shepherd king. Jesus, thank you for this good morning. Thank you for these good people. God, thank you for being the shepherd king that we so desperately need. May it be our testimony our daily faithful testimony and story that this is the love and the goodness and the mercy and the wonder, the joy that is ours because of you. And we just want to share it with those around us. Now you pray as we continue to worship.